The Eagle and Child, Episode 8. Mere Christianity, Book 2, Chapter 1. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we leave book one of Mere Christianity behind and start on book two. And sitting here on the barstool next to me at the Eagle and Child is Matt. I'm excited to begin book two, because as we talked about before, these build. Mm-hmm. And I think book two is great. I think book three is awesome. And just book four is incredible. And so I'm excited to be getting closer to book four. <laughs> do you realize how many times you say excited? You're always excited about what we're going to do. Life is just so exciting. <laughs> I guess so I've also been told I use the word incredible a lot. You do. I, I, if people don't know, I'm the one who edits these. And it's amazing when you're editing 45 minutes worth of audio, how sick you get of your own voice. But also how you notice all the little vocal quirks and language choices that people make. Yes, you use incredible a lot. Yeah, I'm hoping by the end of this podcast, which is the whole reason I'm doing this, not to evangelize, not to do any apologetics, but purely that I will get a deeper vocabulary. (laughs) Doing it with an Englishman is the way to do it. That's exactly right. A pinch of salt. You got your knickers in a twist. I've learned (laughs) these things. But before we begin unpacking book two, just like we did book one, David and I both want to say just how incredibly grateful we are to the listeners for joining us. We've had awesome feedback, and this has been a great journey, and I'm pretty excited, and I think David is too, for what's coming ahead. I'm so excited. (laughs) See, doesn't it feel good? It does. It's a great word. So Jack is now leaving behind his argument for God, and in book two, he's going to be examining what Christians believe about this God. That's what this entire book is called, What Christians Believe. I'm a little afraid I'm going to find out I've been believing some wrong things. I will correct any heresy, and we've got plenty of wood outside, so we can burn you at the stake if (laughs) you're a little too far gone. Oh, that's a good one. So before we go any further, cheers. Cheers. And now we're finishing the last two beers in David's fridge today, Heineken. So if you have some thoughts, listeners, about what beer we should drink as we work through the rest of the book, please tweet us at Pints with Jack. That's really what that Twitter handle's for. It really is. Beer suggestions. Forget the questions. (laughs) So, we are now chapter one of book two, Rival Conceptions of God. I might mock you for saying incredibly and excited, but I always just love the way Jack begins everything. He just has a wonderful way with words, and he's always very disarming. Because in a book that's entitled What Christians Believe, He starts by explaining what Christians don't have to believe. He says that if you're Christian, you don't have to believe that all other religions are completely wrong through and through. However, if you're an atheist, you do actually have to believe that. You have to believe that the main point in all religions is just one huge mistake. Christians are often thought of as being very conservative. But Lewis explains here that the Christians actually get the more liberal view here. They can look into all of these other religions and see elements of truth. What a marvelous point. And yes, I did look up marvelous in the time that you were saying the entire <laughs> quote in the, in the thesaurus from Incredible. But no, what a marvelous point, because most people today tend to have this view that Christianity is narrow-minded, 
narrow focus. You can't believe so many things. We've already addressed this, but like science, you can't believe all this science stuff. Mm -hmm. No, that's just wrong. Uh, And I like how Lewis points out Christians are the ones that can take the broadest view. I don't know if you remember, but somewhere in this book, and you can probably correct me, David, where when Lewis was an atheist, he said he could never be too careful what he read. I actually think that's from Screwtape Letters. Ah. Yeah. I think Screwtape writes and says, be very careful about what your patient reads. Yeah, that is exactly where it's from. The other point I like about this that some listeners might be thinking, people have pointed out that, hey, look, you've got Christianity, you've got Judaism, you've got Islam, Hindu, Buddhism, you've got all these faiths. Doesn't that suggest to you that they're man-made? We brought this up actually in an earlier episode. Yeah. But I'm still going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Go for it. You're right. We did bring it up. And it's worth restating. Chesterton points out that that's additional evidence for God. Mm-hmm. If this was something true, if the Christian story is actually a true thing, you would expect this to be popping up in other places. Not quite as complete, but still containing some of that truth. Yeah. When you find something present everywhere, it's very hard to just simply dismiss that thing. That's exactly right. And this idea of being able to see elements of truth and light in other religions and other worldviews is a very Catholic idea. And we see this in particular in a document from the Second Vatican Council called Nostra Aeterte, which speaks about the relation of the church to other religions. And it says, The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. The Church regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life those precepts and teachings which, though differing in many aspects of the ones that the Church herself sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of truth which enlightens all men. Isn't it amazing the nuggets of wisdom? Not even the nuggets of wisdom, the entire wisdom of so many of these councils. Particularly the Second Vatican Council. (laughs) To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, there's a lot of soft soap these days about the content of Vatican II. If anybody thinks that, Go and read the documents. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to mention before we moved on is Christians are often told that they're arrogant. And while it could be absolutely true that Christians do sometimes act arrogantly, obviously not me, you know, I'm especially humble. You're the most humble person I know. So humble. Greatest of humility. I I thought so. Yeah. (laughs) But I've actually always thought that Really, the atheistic position is one that's intrinsically arrogant. And I don't mean that to be nasty, but if you're an atheist, you believe that the majority of people living today are just wrong about the most essential question in life. And not only that, the vast majority of human history, the entirety of humanity, has just been wrong on this essential question. Hmm. Truth isn't by majority rule. Everybody could believe that Buddhism is true doesn't make it true necessarily. Likewise, virtually everybody could believe in God. That doesn't mean God exists. However, it should give you at least a little pause for thought. Maybe there actually is a little more here than you might originally think. It's funny you say that. When I, one of the things about Mere Christianity, the book that we're going through right now, part of it was what we've described, the argument for desire, reading Mere Christianity that really helped me open myself up to faith. Another part of it was just realizing how intelligent and logical and rational C.S. Lewis is. Mm-hmm. And then I, I finished the book and I'm like, like, this guy went from atheism to Christianity. I might need to have a little pause here and think that I'm missing something. Mm-hmm. And so not on the mass scale that you're talking about, 
But the fact that a very intelligent person like C.S. Lewis believed this after giving it a lot of thought and trying not to gave me a little pause. Yeah, it's just another motive of credibility to give the idea of God, of Christianity, maybe a little bit more of an experiment, a little bit more of an investigation. Uh, That's exactly right. Despite all of these commonalities, Christianity can still make and must make absolute truth claims. Mm -hmm. Lewis writes, as in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. I like to say, in fact, we have to make absolute claims, but we can see truth in other religions where they differ. We must believe we are right and they are wrong. Which is interesting. This causes people to think Christians are arrogant, going back to this conversation. And it's obviously bad to be arrogant, but it's not bad to be accurate. Someone may think you're arrogant because you think you're right. Well, a person making that claim thinks you're right and making that claim, even though others would disagree with him. So they, by definition, be calling themselves arrogant. Mm-hmm. Truth is absolutely not relative. It's absolutely not relative. And returning to Nostra Terte from the Second Vatican Council, that paragraph, paragraph two, ends by saying, Indeed, the church proclaims and ever must proclaim Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. This makes me think of a story where I think it's, it's one of Penn and Teller, you know, that, mm-hmm. that show. One of them is an atheist. And maybe they both are, but... I think they both are, but I think uh, Penn Gillette is a very outspoken atheist. Okay. And so he, after one of his shows, a Christian came up and gave a Bible to him. And rather than being angry, he's like, I was actually somewhat touched by it, because if he actually believes this is true, that's what he should be doing. Mm -hmm. The Christians that don't, how much must they hate a person to not want to actually share this message with them? Absolutely. I have a talk on evangelization. I quote him in that. No way. Because in particular, Catholics were pretty terrible at this evangelization thing. Not historically, but I think particularly in recent years, we started to really suck at this. Yeah. But he's right. How much must you hate somebody if you think eternal life is possible, but you don't want to share it with somebody else? That really pierces friends, family, people you're not talking to about this. But, but will you talk on Facebook and to any person that you meet in the store about a new restaurant that you found, a movie that you've seen? Oh, it's amazing. It'll change your life. It won't really change your life. Jesus being the son of God who died for your sins and he wants to be in eternity with you. Right there. That's going to change your life. What a wonderful point. Because this makes me think of all the times I've had blazing political routes with people and i'm willing to raise my voice go at them to defend a point go looking for more data yeah and and i'm not really worried about offending them no because it it matters this is important this is the future of our country well your country not mine (laughs) my adopted country your adopted country we welcome you but i don't do this for the christian faith at least near as much maybe i'm getting better now but anyways Little tangent there. So Jack starts looking at the population as a whole and starts dividing them up into different groups. He first of all talks about the division between those who believe in God, who are the majority, and those who don't. But he then goes on and then subdivides the group of people who believe in God, and he separates them into pantheists and non-pantheists. 
And I've got to say, I thought this was a little bit of an odd division. Why? I thought it was kind of strange because, pretty simply, I don't often meet pantheists. I didn't even know what it was. Well, let's talk a little bit about the two defining characteristics that Lewis identifies. The first is they believe that God is beyond good and evil. The idea that as you get closer to the divine point of view, the categories of good and evil disappear altogether. And he identifies uh, the Prussian philosopher Hegel. He was apparently a pantheist. And he says, as far as I can understand them, so are the Hindus. And I'll admit, I can never quite get my arms around Hinduism. I'm never quite sure really what the doctrinal beliefs are. It's interesting. Lewis, probably the first time I've heard him use that, says, as far as I can understand. So it sounds like you're in the same boat as he is. It's a good boat to be in. So God is beyond good and evil. And the second point is that God and the universe are almost the same thing. And pantheists believe that God animates the universe in the same way that you animate your body. The universe almost is God. And that would mean that if the universe didn't exist, well, neither would God. Lewis makes the observation that these two beliefs are connected. Because if you don't take good and bad very seriously, if you think when you get to the divine point of view, they disappear altogether, well, then it's fairly easy to say that anything you find in this world, what we would call good or bad, you can say that it's part of God. So he contrasts the pantheists with the non-pantheists. And he identifies those as the Jews, the Christians, and who he calls the Mohammedans. And this is a very non-politically correct term used for Muslims, for the followers of Islam. And it, it's seen a little uh, derogatory because Muslims would say that they don't worship Muhammad, therefore they shouldn't be called Mohammedans. But for non-pantheists, Firstly, right and wrong are taken very seriously. And also, God is seen as very distinct from his creation. Lewis compares it to a painter who paints a picture or a musician who composes a tune. The two things aren't the same. A painter isn't a picture. If you destroy the picture, the painter is still there. And once again, these ideas are connected. Here's Lewis. If you think something's really bad and God really good, then you cannot talk like that. You can't talk like the pantheists as though the universe and God are one and the same thing. You must believe that God is separate from the world and that some things we see in it are contrary to his will. A great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. I'd add to that and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I will. I don't. <laughs> that was a very dumb statement to ever make around David. He will, he will correct you if you're wrong. Which is good. He believes in being accurate, not arrogant. I do it in love. Exactly. Sometimes the a fine line. But uh, I don't think a pantheist, the views at least that we've been talking about of why we believe God exists, going back to that universe, that creator needs to be eternal and outside of time, timeless. And philosophically, that can be a, a good argument for God. A pantheist can't make that. Am I correct? Because if God is a part of the universe, that doesn't really fit. Honestly, I don't know how you'd even begin to try and defend that. No, idea. I don't. At least philosophically. Mm -hmm. But anyways, that was a side point. One thing that really helped me in the Christian journey was understanding nothing God created is bad. Mm -hmm. You have to get away from Gnosticism there, which would say something different. God is good, and his creation is capital G good. But because of free will, 
parts of creation have gone wrong. And I like that last sentence that you said. He insists very loudly on putting them right again. So much that he's willing to die. His only son was willing to die for it. And so I always like, this is getting a little ahead of ourselves. Lewis talks about this later. But Christianity, knowing that it's not about making people better. It's about a transformation, a restoration, a renewal, making things right again. That's what Christianity is. It's not making David better. Or maybe just a bit better. We're talking about a complete upgrade. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Because we will become better. That is a side product. Mm -hmm. But that's not the end of it. Yeah, it's not just to make me a nicer person. Exactly. I mean, for the obvious reason, I am amazingly nice already. (laughs) Now, bringing this full circle, though, it's tempting to believe the question of evil suggests there's no God. I would say it is the best argument for atheism. Yeah. And and Lewis is putting a whole book on this, The Problem of Pain, Mm -hmm. very much related to it. What I love is Jack points out, in fact, the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. The question of evil presupposes God. Yeah. I mentioned Frank Turek, I think, in a previous episode. He's got a book out called Stealing from God. And the idea is that when the atheist wants to criticize Christianity, they usually have to steal some part of Christianity in order to criticize it. And I think we're about to get a picture of this in this quote here from Lewis. Yeah, he sums it up very pithily. He does. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and so unjust. Which I think is fair. I think most people can look out at the world and see enough pain and evil. And it's a very natural response. How could this be possible if there was God, particularly a good God? Yeah, lose a loved one. Have a parent lose a child way early. Mm -hmm. That's a very natural response. Lewis then says, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? And this is where he was stealing from Christianity in order to argue against it. Exactly. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. You need God. You need an absolute in order to make this statement that this is evil, that this is unjust. If we're living in a world of relativism, you can't actually say that. All you can say is, I don't like it. Which goes back to a lot of what we've talked about in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. You can't blame the Nazis. You can have a view for your morality that says, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. But you can't blame them. No. Lewis goes on to say, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. So he could have retreated into, there's pain and suffering in the world, and I don't like it. Yeah. Ron's saying it's wrong. It's just, I just don't like it. Yeah. It's inconvenient to me. Yeah. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Fancies? I couldn't resist. (laughs) Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, mainly my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there's no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. I think while the problem of pain is the strongest argument against God, 
I think just in those two paragraphs, Lewis just offered the best rebuttal. That you can't complain about evil and injustice without there being an eternal transcendent being in which to ground those concepts. Isn't it fascinating how some of the strongest arguments and the surface against can become some of the strongest for? Mm. It's not another example. It's not like a, a single argument, but all the arguments of science and the creation of the universe in the beginning, to me, originally, were strong arguments against it. Then when I, I started thinking about that first cause in the very beginning, it became the strongest argument for it. And the problem of pain is an emotionally very persuasive argument. Mm -hmm. But I think intellectually, it has real issues. Yeah. The way I typically respond when somebody brings up the concept of evils, like how could a good God allow this? I respond with the question of, could God bring about a greater good through this evil, through this suffering? Mm -hmm. And they really have to answer, yes, he could. I remember Bishop Barron told the story of a man who kept a number of horses. And one day the gate broke and all the horses ran off. And all of the neighbors said, oh, what a terrible tragedy. And he said, we'll see. The next day, those horses came back, but they brought with them a number of wild horses. And everybody said, oh, what a wonderful thing. And he said, we'll see, we'll see. The following day, his son is starting to break the new horses. And one of the horses bucks him and throws him onto the ground and he breaks his leg. And everybody says, oh, what a tragedy. And he said, we'll see, we'll see. The next day, the army come to town and conscript all of the young, able men into the army for a war that they're going to. But of course, because his son has a broken leg, he can't go. And I think that story demonstrates that what on the surface can seem like a tragedy can actually turn out for good. And just from personal experience, some of the worst moments in my life, I look back on them now and I see either something else that came out of it or what it formed in me. And as horrible as they were to go through, I wouldn't be without those experiences. Never forget, God loves you more than you love yourself. So when something bad happens, we see something happening that's against our plan. It might be the perfect plan for us and God sees it. Yeah, we're, we're incredibly short-sighted. Mm -hmm. We are not in a good place very often to be able to understand or to be able to see how could good possibly come out of this. I think it was in the debate between Trent Horn and Dan Barker. Trent told the story of a woman who was going to be going on this trip. It was a trip to another continent. It was going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But the day before, she got sick and she couldn't go. And she was absolutely gutted. You'd agree. That, that sounds like a terrible thing. Oh, that'd be awful. But what if I told you that she was going to be traveling by boat to America and that boat was named the Titanic. Ooh. Now, because that woman was sick, she didn't go on the boat. And as a consequence, Trent has a beautiful wife who is a descendant of that lady. Wow. We very often cannot see the consequences of actions, particularly when they're spread out over time and over generations. So although the problem of pain is very real and emotionally very, very strong, we also have to bring reason to it and see that in the cold light of day, that there could be more going on here than we can actually see. And particularly from a Christian point of view, we have the cross. We see what looked like a complete and utter failure. A wannabe Messiah who pushed it a little bit too far 
and ended up being tortured and publicly executed in one of the most painful ways possible. But it was through that that God redeemed the world. I mean, I think that's beautiful. And honestly, I don't think there's a better way to end it. And so at that note, I think it's getting close to time to going home. Yeah. So as always, I'll put a link in the show notes to my notes for this chapter. Contact us on the website or on Twitter at Pints with Jack. We always love tweets, especially as we start the new book. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you thought of book one and as we continue into book two. So sign off. Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.